0: Today, we are exploring a nation that needs little introduction. Once a thriving European commonwealth, the country fell drastically from its once pedestal, but still remains a nation with tremendous pride and is known for its unique identity. From Polish jokes, to women farmers, to turning chairs upside down at funerals, join us today as we investigate the notorious country of Poland. I'm Scott Parrish and you're listening to Dying to Eat, each episode. We'll be exploring the relationship between food and death around the world. If you love food, culture, and fun stories, then I've got a great show in store for you. So make sure you stick around to the end to see what's cooking this week. Before we dive into today's subject, let me ask you. Do you have trouble resting at night? Issues with anxiety? High-quality CBD may be the answer. Check out our sponsor, TheTailoredHemp.com. They can answer your questions and give you direction on what may fit your needs the best. Check them out, thetailoredhemp.com. If I was on Who Wants to be a Millionaire and Reed just asked me what country was the most prosperous country between the 14th and 16th century on the European continent, I'd be phoning Will Joe. Absolutely one of the most intelligent people I know, and he left the U.S. for Sweden right after college. I'm sure he'd know right away it was the Polish-Lithuanian commonwealth and it was the largest, most prosperous country on the European continent. This glorious title didn't last long, though, as continuous wars with foreign powers began to devastate the economy, which, of course, led to significant political powers. In the late 1800s, Poland was partitioned by its more powerful neighbors, Austria, Persia, and the powerhouse Russia. The occupation led to an increase in in industrialization productivity for the economy, but as a result, Poland ceased to exist as a country for more than 120 years, beginning in 1795. Suppressing the Polish national identity and the culture resulted in violent uprisings and eventually they regained independence following Germany's surrender in 1918. The subsequent land divisions led to a continued fracture between Germany Austria and even Czechoslovakia. Poland was constantly being invaded by Germany and Russia, which ended up sparking World War II. Okay, maybe there were other reasons. We'll cover that in a future episode. But the Polish Republic was reignited only two decades before. But because of this war outbreaking, it again ceased to exist during and after the war. Tragically, Poland experienced horrendous war crimes from 1939 to 1945, and the prideful country ended up loosening a a whooping 20% of its population. There is still an infamous concentration camp that you and your family can visit, including the notorious Auschwitz, and I hear they even have a gift shop. Okay, okay, that's insensitive and uncalled for. I apologize. Though I do believe that we do have to address our past failures to overcome them. Following World War II, Poland was forcefully subdued to become a Soviet communist state and was known as the People's Republic of Poland. They lived in a 30-year recession from the 1950s to the 80s. The people ended up rising up and forming anti-communism trade unions and began to oppose the government. While military involvement was made by the Soviets, the people still had impact and ended up weakening the government's excessive power and eventually led to a free vote election in the year 1989. A monumental movement for the political, prideful Poland folks. The Poland people have a reason to be prideful. They are an economic success story, boasting a strong GDP and a national identity despite its turbulent past. Just before the year 2000, Poland became part of NATO, and by 2004 was a member of the European Union. They earn their respect and now live in much better conditions than their grandparents did. And isn't that what we all want? Generational to help those people that that we're raising, our, our kids, our young? The Polish government took a play out of the Americans' book and is now divided into three branches. Executive, Legislative, and Judicial. The Executive branch includes a President, a Prime Minister, two Deputy Prime Ministers, and a Cabinet or a Council of Ministers. The president, who is the chief of state, is elected by a popular vote for a five-year term. No electoral college in Poland. I hear that's why Hillary Clinton hasn't run for president there, but we'll keep that between us right now. The legislative branch consists of two houses. The 100-seat Senate, whose members are elected for four-year terms by the majority vote from the provinces, and the 460-seat same, whose members serve four years and are elected on insured proportional representation. (laughs) Okay, we're into it. I get it. I get it. I'll get over these words. Four, it's only English, right? My second language after Southern. So four seats are constitutionally reserved for ethnic German parties in that situation also. Let's dive into the food preferences of Poles. Meat, bread, and potatoes. Sounds pretty American, right? Turns out the Polish lean heavily into this diet plan. Lean heavily. Now, that makes me laugh. For many Poles, dinner is not dinner without meat. Primarily, it's pork that they eat. They also consume 300 pounds of potatoes per capita per year. Per capita per year. I think that's per person per year. Let's talk about bread. Well, the Poles actually also consume a lot of bread, and the bread is treated with reverence. In the past, if a piece of bread fell on the ground, it was picked up carefully, kissed, and used to make the sign of the cross. This is unique because a large number of Poles attached themselves to Catholicism. This religion became even more prevalent after the election of Pope John Paul II as the head of church. He was the first pope not to be Italian. Andy he was also Polish. 95% of Poland's inhabitants are Roman Catholics with an astounding 75% attending church services regularly. It appears that we will see a lot of Polish people in heaven. Amen brother Poles. Now here's something interesting about Polish daily meal sequence. Typically it starts with a substantial breakfast eaten between 5 and 8 a.m. Eggs, meat, bread, cheese, cold cuts may be served. Yep, I said cold cuts for breakfast. Pass a bologna and say grace. Between nine and 11 in the morning, people may have a second breakfast similar to an American bag lunch. Dinner, or what they call dinner, the main meal of the day is served between one and five in the afternoon and contributes to 40 or 45% of the calories for the day. Heck, I would have to have after dinner dinner, eating that early. Where's those breadsticks? So dinner consists of a large bowl of soup, a main course, and dessert. Salads, when served, are eaten with the main course. On Sundays, appetizers may start the meal. Actually, they do have an after-dinner dinner. This last meal of the day is its a lighter meal, and it's eaten between 6 and 8 in the evening. It may be a repeat of the breakfast menu, or it could include cold, fresh water, fish, aspic jelly dishes, and cooked vegetable salads. All those meals, I don't expect there to be a whole lot of skinny people in Poland. So, I don't know, we'll see, right? Now, after meals, tea and coffee are almost always served. Tea is sipped more frequently, while coffee is viewed as slightly special. It's a bit like Turkish coffee, which I like really strong coffee. Late-in-the-day coffee just isn't something I normally do, though. Let's briefly talk about Polish feasts. Because common first names are noted in published calendars along with holidays, people know when to acknowledge an individual's name day. Name day can be your birthday. More importantly, it's the day you individually celebrate your your patron saint. Such celebrations typically feature cakes and other party foods. At weddings, the bride and groom are greeted with bread and salt, which are essentials for life upon their return from church. Jeez, I should have eaten before this recording. Now I'm craving breadsticks. (laughs) Anyway, the Christmas season is the traditional time of baking cookies, honey spice cakes, and cheese dough apple cakes. Among the oldest and most traditional Christmas treats are honey rye wafers and poppy seed or nut crunch. Babka, a cake, is another traditional dish that must be taller than it is wide, and it must be narrower at the top than on the bottom. It's a virtual tower of cake. The most solemn family gathering of the year is Christmas Eve supper. Family gather to share opatik, which is a thin white wafer sometimes called angel bread, followed by an odd number of meatless dishes. Fish is permitted, those, and uh, traditional dishes include needles with poppy seeds and wheat pudding. Let's shift gears here and get off the delicious food. Let's talk about women in the workforce. In the cities, both men and women are employed outside the home. However, there is a male bias in employment. Proportionately, more women are unemployed than men. However, in rural areas, women participate fully in farm work, both in the fields and at home. Women really step up in the rural areas, and a lot of women actually operate a large number of the farms. Heck yeah, girl power, goats. In fact, women operate a significant percentage of farms. In 1992, they operated 20% of the farms in the country. Almost 70% of the female farmers were single and more than 40% were age 60 or older. Usually, the children have moved away and the husband has died or is unable to farm. This sounds vaguely like a farmers-only dating advertisement, huh? Heck, I'd try it. Come on, Helga, show me some of those cow milking skills. Well, wait a minute. That came out worse than it did in my head. So, uh, women live in a male-oriented society with a few groups working to change the national attitudes. They are subject to family violence at home and sexual harassment in the workplace. They also have less access to credit and jobs. Very few women have achieved top leadership positions in politics, business, and the professions. They are excluded from leadership in the Catholic Church. Among the peasants and the workers, there's a strong patriarchal ideology and the husband is apt to regard himself as superior and the master. The wife is expected to make it clear that her husband is the head of the family. However, a man will not make an important decision without consulting his wife. In more wealthy families, the relationship is more equal and a man places great value on his wife's opinions and counsels. As the expression goes, the man controls the head but the woman controls the neck and where the head goes. Is that an expression? Sounds like it ought to be. So, Polish women perform the second shift, the phenomenon of simultaneously managing an external job and a household. Shopping, especially for groceries, and housework are considered women's work. A man will do almost anything not to cook, wash dishes, or clean the house. I guess some things... Are the same all over the world. You know, it, though that's definitely not me. You guys know how much I love to throw down in the kitchen. I even get on my own. I even get my own groceries. Heck, it's really the only thing I really like shopping for. All the food, all the possibilities. I really do like the grocery store. So we mentioned earlier that Poland saw a tragic 20% decline in population during World War II. It turns out the Nazis and the Communists didn't just kill anyone, they actually targeted intellectuals, therefore leading to the demise of a strong and rigid social stratification that marked Poland prior to 1939. The Nazis deliberately killed educated Poles. For 45 years, the Communist government pursued policies tended to reduce, intended to reduce social classes. They fostered education <coughs> and the economic and educational advancement of peasants and workers. With the government's success in creating industrial jobs, there has been a great movement of rural people to the cities. Let's talk about social classes for a minute. Currently, there are six strata or groupings. Peasants, workers, intelligentsia, slatda, which are the nobles or the gentry, the no Man la clura, which is the ruling group during the existence of the communist government, and the nascent, which is the middle class. Or, <laughs> let me back that up. The nascent middle class. <laughs> wow. The workers in the intelligentsia have increased both numerically and proportionately. The ruling class that held power during communist rule is fighting to regain political power and Mainstay economic power. The slotna still constitute some 10 to 15% of the population, but their significance has been practically eliminated. People starting businesses are just beginning to differentiate themselves. One thing that's interesting about this show is we explore the death rituals of countries, cultures, and even indigenous people, but one thing we rarely talk about is marriage rituals. Death and marriage go hand in hand, right? Until death we do part and all that kind of stuff, right? Well, in Poland, people typically get married before age 20. Unmarried women over 20 are seen as spinsters, and bachelors in their late 20s are subjected to political censure, to public censure, and mockery. Imagine getting mocked for being a bachelor in the U.S. I mean, it just wouldn't happen. Both men and women expect to marry, have children, have only one spouse for a lifetime, Marriage has always been viewed as a holy responsibility, and it is commonly believed that the unmarried or the never-married cannot really be happy and will have difficulty obtaining salvation. Wow, now that's heavy, man. Could my mama be Polish and I didn't know it? Sounds vaguely familiar. Okay, mama, if you're listening, I promise I'm looking for Miss Wright. Girls, send in your applications. There's an interview process. Traditionally, most marriages were arranged to improve family fortune. Love was not important. Is that from the Bible? I must have missed that Sunday. Formal divorce is extremely difficult. However, one way to escape that is if one member of the couple is to, let's say, move. ostensibly, ostensibly, <laughs> ostensibly ble. To earn, (laughs) we're going to get through this one way or another, earn money in a distant location, and they just never return. I'm guessing the last thing you really want to hear from your spouse is, hey, I'll be right back. Let's talk about propaganda. A word I can actually say here. Have you ever heard of it? Have you ever seen it? Are we seeing it right now in 2021? It's possible. Well, let's take a look at the origin of the Polish joke. First let's discuss what a Polish joke really is. Polish joke is an English language, ethnic joke deriding Polish people based on the demagoguery stereotypes. While I'm always ready for a good laugh, this is why I'm skipping my dad joke this week. These guys have had enough of this stuff. The Polish joke belongs to the category of conditional jokes whose full understanding requires the audience to have prior knowledge of what a Polish joke is. As with all discriminatory jokes, Polish jokes depend on the listener's preconceived notions and antipathies. The relation between the internalized demagoguery stereotypes about Polish people and the persistence of ethnic jokes about them is not easy to trace, though the jokes seem to be understood by many who hear them. Sometimes an offensive term for a Pole, such as a Polak, is used in the joke. We discovered in the Polish-American Journal that Polish jokes came from Nazi-German propaganda that was then pushed ironically by the Soviet communist sympathizers in Hollywood. The racist stereotype that Poles are intellectually inferior and have subhuman intelligence originated from Nazi-German propaganda and Soviet propaganda. For example, The myth that Polish horses were used to attack German tanks in World War II was total Nazi-German propaganda that the Nazi-Germans repeated over and over until it took a life of its own using the big lie technique. The big lie is defined as the intentional distortion of the truth, especially for political or official purposes. This tactic of trying to deceive a country's citizens was written about by Adolf Hitler. He stated in his New York Times bestseller, see how that works, total fabrication that many people will question if they hear it enough. Hitler didn't just write about these Polish jokes. He even used them in some of his speeches after he invaded Poland. The Soviet communists saw the value of this myth and the racist notion that Polish people have subhuman intelligence, so they had their left-wing sympathizers in Hollywood push it to the American public using anti-Polish television and movie, and movie imagery. They also purposely murdered Poles with high intellect so that there was a wrench in the stereotype. The Nazi Germans also felt Poles only had the intelligence for Nazi slave labor. Their actions matched their feelings. It benefited the Soviet communists and then because people would not mind too much If Poland is occupied by the Soviet Union, if Poles were portrayed as having a Slavic culture that was inferior and somehow less than human. It made what they were doing oddly acceptable in the eyes of many, many people, unfortunately. Many Polish Americans who lived before this time have reported that they never heard these racist subhuman intelligence jokes about Poles until after they were introduced by left-wing networks like Get this, NBC TV in conjunction with Hollywood. NBC TV launched Polish bashing shows such as Laugh-In, which ridiculed Polish people consistently, constantly. (laughs) Polish Americans felt, uh, I'm laughing at at myself, I'm not laughing at what happened to the Polish people. Polish Americans felt the producer of Laugh-In, his name was George slatter was an anti-polish bigot in addition to late night bigots being encouraged to bash poles with jokes that portrayed the polish people as having subhuman intelligence therefore the power of television and the motion pictures was used to demean and dehumanize polish people with repetitive big lie type propaganda anti-polish movies such as the end were some of the earliest movies meant to degrade Poles with racist humor. In addition to other anti-Polish shows such as All in the Family, were used to degrade the Polish people even though the left-wing producer claimed the ruse that the show was supposed to be against bigotry. Now if you've seen All in the Family, you know that that's definitely not the case. All in the Family was filled with racist anti-Polish sound bites such as Dumb Polak, in an attempt to influence his viewers to have the same anti-Polish prejudice that the left-wing producer of the show, that was Norman Lear. So basically, Polish jokes were part of Hollywood TV media hate campaign against Polish people, and it spread far and wide before it became known amongst the general population. Fortunately, Polish jokes started to decline in the U.S. when Polish-Americans put aside their good nature and aggressively spoke out against the anti-Polish hatred. Today, Polish jokes and ethnic jokes in general are seen as ethnic slurs by most fairly-minded, fair-minded Americans, despite the fact that there is less tolerance for Polish jokes today than decades due to the large part of the civil rights movement and the increased use of social media. This does not mean Polish jokes have been completely eradicated, but we're definitely headed there. So let me ask. Do you think about death daily? Do you talk about death daily? Well, it seems a lot of people in Poland do. Death is part of the daily discourse in both Poland's rural and urban areas. The Polish think that death is a lean, tall woman who wears a white sheet and holds a, a scythe. Hot. I wonder if she's single. So, no human can stop her, but animals can see her and warn others of her presence. She also holds the belief that it is better if if the death is quick and painless than from an illness. And when that lean, tall woman who's wearing a white sheet comes for your loved one, a lot goes into effect. When your clock is punched in Poland, your death needs to be pronounced by a doctor. The body remains in place of the death for around two hours. The certificate of death is provided by the local government and is necessary in order to complete all of the bureaucratic procedures. If a body is not present, such in the case of, say, death in an accident like a plane crash, the person is pronounced dead after six months through a court decision. In the case of a missing person, the person is pronounced dead after 10 years. In urban areas, funeral homes can take care of everything related to a person's funeral. In rural areas, however, there is no need to go to the funeral home and pay for these services. All the expenses for the funeral are covered by the state, along with a special benefit for the poorer families. Polish people either bury the dead or have them cremated. However, cremation is still not very popular and scattering of the ashes is illegal in Poland. But then again... Who's going to catch you or report you to the authorities, right? The first step is holding awake. The body of the deceased is placed in their own house or at a relative's home. Family friends and neighbors gather for three days and nights in order to pray for the soul of the deceased. I'm sorry, but three days is a really big commitment. I'd want to wrap it up after a day or two. Well maybe not. I guess it really depends on what they're serving for dinner, right? The wake involves wailing and singing so that bad spirits stay away. Doing that for three days sounds really awkward. Screaming at dead evil spirits? I think I know a Polish guy that hangs out in the corner near my house. I just thought he was homeless. The next step is the procession, which is similar to America in a way. During this event, the coffin is carried to a local church, usually on foot. Here, a remembrance service takes place. The coffin is then carried to a cemetery in another procession. After reaching the cemetery, religious duties are performed. If the person is a Catholic, you'll probably see a Catholic funeral reading taking place. Then the coffin is lowered into the ground. A handful of soil is thrown on the coffin by each mourner. A nameplate or a cross with a nameplate is placed on the top of the grave, followed by flowers and wreaths. There is a post-funeral ceremony in which people have a meal and talk about the deceased. The death of a loved one is mourned ritually and there's a lot of significant display in the sadness. It's very rare to find someone who is calm or smiling or trying to remember the happy days spent with these loved ones. Mourners will wear a black ribbon pinned to the clothing and eat kaza, which is it's like this porridge, along with drinking this mixture that has honey and vodka. Now that I'm interested in. Some of their burial traditions are a bit fascinating too. The first one is putting the seats upside down. I mentioned it earlier. This is a Jewish tradition that has found its way to Poland. According to its tradition, the soul of the dead person doesn't want to leave the earth and stays here for as long as it can. Keeping the seats upright makes it difficult for the soul to leave the body. Thus, all seats in the house of the deceased have to be turned upside down. Covering mirrors after death is another Jewish tradition that Polish people follow. Polish people believe that it is obligatory to cover up the mirrors in the house. Otherwise the soul of the deceased would stay inside the mirror and will haunt the living in the form of a scary reflection. They also like to decorate the door with small crosses, black bows, images of saints, gold jewelry, branches of birch, and more on the door of the house to commemorate the deceased. When someone dies, the hand Bell, which are bells placed all over Poland and are looked upon as symbols of protection from thunderstorms, these bells are rung as a symbolic announcement of the death. Moreover, people believe that it scares the evil spirits and demons away from the soul of the deceased. Polish people tend to place a candle in the hands of the deceased in order to help the soul find a path towards the afterlife. Coins are also placed in the mouth, the hand, and the left armpit so the soul of the deceased will not return. I find that very interesting. So when you die you get a candle and a couple of bucks. Wouldn't it just be easier to call that lady in the white robe and order an Uber? I don't know. Have you ever stopped a clock on purpose? This is another Polish custom in which clocks are stopped immediately after the person takes their last breath. This custom symbolizes that the time has ended for the dead and a new period of existence has started, one that isn't bound by time. If the clocks are not stopped, it means that you're inviting the soul of the deceased to remain in the world. When an individual is dying and the clock is still ticking, they are usually placed on the ground, and all of the doors and windows of the house are open so the soul has the freedom to go to heaven. So what do you wear to one of these three-day funerals? Well, it really depends on different facts. People who are over the age of 18 are supposed to wear black mourning mourning attire. Children are not expected to wear black, but they can. Mourning is symbolized by wearing black and by abstaining from dancing, singing, and participating in weddings and other joyous occasions. In case of the death of a partner or a parent, the mourning period lasts for one year. If it's a grandchild, a mother-in-law, or a father-in-law, the mourning period is 6 months if a sibling dies the mourning period lasts for three months clearly polish traditions reflect a mix of western catholic and jewish customs though the mourning attire and the funeral are similar to much of the western world catholic funeral readings and jewish lore contribute to a significant to a specific burial custom to this day if you ever attend a polish person's funeral You'll be able to see how many of these traditions are followed by the family. So let's get to my favorite part. Today's recipe is going to be a Polish crepe, a.k.a. nalasniki. Similar to French crepes, Polish naleśniki are thin pancakes meant to be filled and rolled and can be either sweet or savory depending on the feeling. The batter for the pancakes is made with flour, eggs, milk, water, preferably, carbonated water, and a pinch of salt, while optional ingredients include sugar, butter, oil, in which case the pan for frying usually doesn't have to be greased. Typically sweet fillings include jams, preserves, fruit, and cheese. While savory, nalaseki can be filled with cheeses, meat, mushrooms, or even sauerkraut. Once filled, the pancakes are rolled or folded into a triangle and can be, in some cases, either shortly fried until golden or baked in the oven. Now now Nala sneaky can be served, drizzled with honey or syrup, topped with fruits, or sprinkled with confectioner's sugar, and should be eaten while they're still warm. Although there is evidence pancake-like dishes have been in existence in China in the 4th century BC, as well as ancient Greece and Rome, the pancake we know today It's most likely invented in Florence and brought to to France by Catherine uh, Medici when she married the King Henry II of France in the 16th century. Because the first Polish pancakes were sour and made with cream or buttermilk, they were named after two Polish words. Nala means to pour and "maslenka" means buttermilk. Today, they're a favorite breakfast food and especially popular with kids. We really do hope that you find time to make these for yourself and even more so that if you have kids, that you have time to enjoy them with this. This recipe is super easy and it's really fun and it's really tasty. So for the topping of my version Nalasiki, it's one half pint of fresh blueberries and three teaspoons of butter. Mix and stir over low heat until the berries are warm throughout, and then set it aside. For the filling, you need 4 ounces of cream cheese, 4 ounces of ricotta, 2 ounces of blueberry jam, and stir that until consistent. it has a consistent color and it's smooth. And set that to the side, because then we're going to make the dough. You need 2 eggs, 1 cup of milk, 3 quarters cup of water, 3 tablespoons of melted butter, one cup of all-purpose flour, and one quarter teaspoon of salt. Mix the liquid ingredients and then add the dry to the liquid. Mix until all the lumps are gone. Over medium heat, heat a teaspoon of oil in a skillet. Cook the pancakes in batches of about four inches in diameter, and really you should only have to flip them one time. Once cooked, roll about one tablespoon of filling and then uh, spoon on some topping. Sounds pretty easy, right? It is. So, I've been your host, Scott Parrish, and I'd like to thank you for listening to Dying to Eat. This show is made possible by listeners like Stephanie Johnson, Julia Greenlight, and Naomi Hurst. I really appreciate your support and that of all of our listeners. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to hear more, look out for new episodes every week on your favorite podcast platform, Make sure to drop us a like and follow the show to stay up to date on our latest episodes. Also, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram. Until next time, stay likely.